and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. This is episode two with Dr. Allison Paquette. She's an assistant professor at the University of Washington and a principal investigator at Seattle Children's. And her research focuses primarily on pregnancy, which I'm so excited to talk with you about, Allie. I know a lot of people are interested in this topic. It's really relevant and it's also a really understudied field. So I'm excited to dive into it with you. Um, so to get started, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what led you to do um, science for a career and pregnancy in particular. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. And I'm really excited to talk about this too. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with talking a little bit about my background and you know why I got interested in science. Um, so I always really enjoyed like science in like high school and I decided to go to an engineering school, um, Worcester Polytech for undergrad. And, you know, there I was like able to do some, I got to do a lot of lab work, which was really great. Um, I got like a lot of background doing like chemistry and biochemistry lab work. But what really got me excited and made me decide to go to grad school is when I did a, um, an internship at the Environmental Protection Agency. So I um, lived in DC for like three months and we worked on looking at what the Environmental Protection Agency was funding. And we were specifically looking at like toxicology research. But while I was there, I got a chance to like sit in on some um, like sessions and some like presentations about like how the environment was influencing the child health outcomes. And I was really excited to like learn a little bit more about this. And so I decided to go on and get a PhD and I was looking specifically within like toxicology programs. And so then I decided to go to Dartmouth and I was in the experimental and molecular medicine program because it was like a really interdisciplinary program. And that was great because like I wasn't 100% sure like what exactly I wanted to do because I was coming right from undergrad. And so then I met um, Carmen Marsit, who was my advisor for my PhD and he really introduced me to this concept of like the developmental origins of health and disease, which is this um, like idea that was kind of brought about that like what happens during pregnancy influences your health throughout the lifetime. So then I became really interested in studying pregnancy because it's really like such an important time period in your life. And it's such a short time period that anything that happens during this time can really impact, you know, not only like your physical health, but also your mental health throughout the lifetime. Um, yeah, so I kind of got excited about that aspect of things. And it's also really great to study pregnancy because it's a short time span. So it's kind of like a little easier to study than something like cancer that, you know, takes place over a longer time span. Wow. Um, Can I ask you a question? So when you started in Carmen's lab, was <laughs> the, was the, the idea that, you know, pregnancy is such an important developmental period for your kind of whole lifespan health, was that new or was that already kind of present in the field? So that was probably like this hypothesis was created in like the 1990s. And it really kind of came out of like them looking at medical records of people that had been in World War II and the Dutch hunger famine. And what they found is that these people who were like involved in this very, very stressful time period who were like conceived during that time period had like a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, like much later in life. So they were only able to detect that, right? Like 50 years out. So it really like started in the nineties. And there's like a lot of epidemiological studies showing this relationship, but really what we're able to do now because we can measure things in the placenta and we have like a lot of like better 
like newer technologies to measure molecular things is we can really start to like kind of define the molecular mechanisms there and like catch it a little bit earlier. Um, so like interesting. So <laughs> you would say epidemiology was kind of, you know, an initial force for our understanding of this, you know, disease issue potentially. Yeah. But I then it rolled into more of like an actual molecular biology field. Yeah. And there were some like really interesting experiments that came out in like, you know, I think like the early 2000s where, um, and like the University of Montreal where they were able to like treat mice. Um, and induce changes in like the baby mice's brains from like, um, you know, inducing stress or something in the mother mouse. So there was some, some animal studies, some epidemiology, and then some now computational biology. So it's really like an epi like a really interdisciplinary field. That's so neat. Yeah, I, I worked, you know, as you recall on schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in graduate school. And I remember learning about one of the schizophrenia models in mice where you know you keep the baby mice away from the mom or something like that like they don't get groomed as much and yeah. it's actually like that bonding interaction that you know impacts their neuronal development and it's it's it sounds so cruel but you know as scientists we have to rely on some of these models to try to understand the human biology in in greater detail than we otherwise would yeah, absolutely. So there's just, you have to ask it from like so many different angles, I think. So do you use any um, animal models or cellular models in your own research? So right now I don't use any animal models. And the reason for that is I mainly study the placenta and the placenta is very unique in humans. Mostly I do um, like computational work where I have um, data that's measured in pregnant women throughout pregnancy or at the end of pregnancy. And so I do analysis on that data. So I don't really do a lot of like animal work or cell culture work, but I have worked with that data too. Sure. It's so neat that you're able to actually, you know, get placental samples from patients or mothers and study those on a deeper level. Can you tell us like when you started you know, moving more towards the systems biology, because of course that's where you and I first met in Nathan Price's lab. You joined as a postdoc um, when I was in graduate school and I remember being the only woman in the lab and you kind of saved me <laughs> coming in. Um, I know, so, I definitely, I wanted to join a lab that had like women in it. So it was really great that you were there as well. Yeah, um, but I remember you were excited to kind of get your hands more on like the systems biology side of things. What, what inspired you about that? Like, can you tell us a little bit about like your movement into systems biology? Yeah, absolutely. So for my PhD, I was looking at newborn neurobehavior. So I was looking at how changes in the placenta influence newborn neurobehavior. And I was really looking at um, DNA methylation, which affects like gene expression potential. And I really wanted to understand like transcription factors that regulate that because it wasn't like the full story, just looking at one molecular measurement at a time. And I really wanted to look at more different things. So I kind of thought going into systems biology um, and like learning how to analyze more different types of omics data and like integrating them together would provide like a more comprehensive picture. And I, I really like the model that like, you know, 
you've been using with the transcriptional regulatory network. So that was one of the big um, drivers in the lab because it was kind of the only way to answer some of the questions that I had. Sure, yeah. And to give everybody a, a bit of background. So mm -hmm. systems biology is a type of research where we try to pull in lots of different data sources. Oftentimes we're looking at things on like the gene level, the RNA level, the protein level, and kind of combining these big data sets to try to come up with, you know, broader hypotheses about what's impacting, say, a disease or um, various periods of pregnancy and how, you know, these epigenetic changes that Ali mentioned are influencing um, development. And so I think it's, you know, it, it's an interesting field in that it was maybe not as well accepted in the early days of it, but is now, you know, kind of clearly ac accepted as an important part of how we understand any type of cellular state or biological state. Um, so getting back to like the lab environment, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your path in, you know, what's obviously a male dominated field and, um, how that's been for you, you know, just kind of speak to your experience and, you know, maybe if you've had any hardships or if you've ever felt like it was more challenging um, because you're a woman, you know, I know it's a touchy subject, but if you feel like commenting on it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been in like a male dominated field for like, you know, my entire career, I would say, but there are like kind of pockets so like I went to Worcester Polytech, which is, you know, a male, it, when I went at least, it was like primarily like 75% male, but you know, the biology classes were mostly female, which is kind of like a weird, you know, thing that happened. And then my, actually my graduate program was mostly female. Um, and so my lab was like, you know, I had like, it was a really small lab that I was in in graduate school and I had one other graduate student um, that I was working with, but yeah, since being at the ISB, you know, like our lab was mostly male and I collaborate a lot with, um, like this consortium called Echo Pathways, which is at the University of Washington. And it's kind of great because it's like mostly women PIs. And so I've been able to get like a lot of mentoring from, from those individuals. And so I think that there are opportunities to get like female mentoring, you know, outside of those fields. And that's been really helpful to me. Um, and yeah, like, you know, being the only woman in a male dominated field is, you know, kind of troubling. Like, I think one thing that was kind of interesting when we were both at the ISB is people kept confusing us. Yes. And it's that not was... anybody's fault, but it was just like, yeah, I would have like conversations that were so bizarre. Yeah. And then we would figure out. So what would happen was, you know, someone, you know, maybe we didn't work directly with them, but they'd be in a mm -hmm. lab that kind of shared the space. They'd come up to either Allie or I and think we were the other person and so people would come up to me and talk about like placental research and I'm just like I'm not Allie and then they come up yeah. to Allie and try to talk about my research and it was this like recurring thing because we both like we both had like long blonde hair and um mm -hmm. we're kind of the same height so <laughs> I guess like it's not terrible but it was also kind of funny um yeah it, yeah it's just like confusing and I mean yeah, overall, you know, it kind of is what it is. I think it's really important to, like, find female mentors um, and also to, you know, be in a lab. If, if it's going to be, like, an all-male lab, make sure it's, like, a healthy, like, work environment. 
Definitely. Or like, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, so one thing I'm so impressed by, by the way, congratulations on, you know, getting an assistant professorship and starting your own lab. It's just so thrilling to see a woman starting her lab and um, you've really like persevered through so much and it like science is just hard in general, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to like kind of make it in the academic route, um, I think mm -hmm. is so inspiring. Can you talk about like what this last year has been like for you? I know it's been, you know, kind of a tough uphill road and just curious what you've gone yeah. through to get there. <laughs> this last year was like pretty crazy. Um, you know, not only because it was like 2019, 2020, but um, so, you know, deciding to apply for faculty jobs is kind of like a big decision. It takes a lot of time to apply for these jobs. And so I initially was excited and I decided to go down the faculty route when I received this K99 Pathway to Independence Award. And so the way that this like is a grant from the NIH and the way it works is it funds you for two years, like in your current position and it funds you for three years as an independent investigator, but you need to make a transition to an independent research institute. And so, you know, there's a lot of like strategies about how you can apply for faculty positions and having the K99 is really great because you're bringing your like funding into a new lab. But the way that I did it, I decided to wait until my second year to apply for faculty positions, which meant I only had one year. And, you know, there's only so many positions open every year and they're pretty competitive. So um, that was really challenging. And I think in retrospect, I would have applied over like a broader like period of time. And then, yeah, like, I mean, I think I got a lot of advice about how to apply for faculty positions. And I initially like didn't really want to apply to too many. And then I got some advice, you know, like you need to be applying all over, which I don't necessarily like agree with. And I, you know, ended up being in like, the place that I really wanted to be, which was like a huge relief. But I just feel like for some fields, it might make sense to like apply broadly, but you know, there's not like a thousand like positions available. There's only like, you know, like I'm not like I'm a cancer biology researcher. There aren't like cancer biology places like all over the country you can yeah. apply. So I just, I feel like some of the advice I got wasn't like, the, didn't make the most sense. Yeah, so it got kind of like crazy towards the end because I, applied during COVID. So, you know, I initially got like three interviews, um, like in-person interviews, which I did. And then I ended up getting like a couple more interviews that were going to be in person, mm -hmm. but I really wanted to be at Seattle Children's. And I was interviewing like at, in the beginning of March, like for positions, like I interviewed here like March mm -hmm. 5th, um, which is, you know, when COVID was like really kind of coming into yeah. play. So it was just also kind of interesting, like dealing with that at the same time. Definitely. Did it interfere with like your happiness and relief when you finally accepted that position or were you still just like glad that the whole process was over? I mean, I was just super happy to like accept a position, like the position that I really was excited about. Like I have like really great collaborators here and I also am really excited about this um, department. And it was just like a really good fit. Mm -hmm. So I was just, like so excited about that. But at the same time, it was also a little hard because it was like March and April in 2020. But yeah. honestly, it was such a relief. Um, I think it was actually like, you know, I was just like so thankful to like have a position because like sure. a lot of people were also closing their searches because mm -hmm. there were like budget and stuff. So I see. 
Yeah. Well, congrats again. It's a huge accomplishment. Like I'm just so happy for you. I'd love to hear like some of the highlights since then, you know, with your lab and like, you know, even though you're probably just getting things going, you know, if you've hired your first postdoc or like any of the happy moments you want to share with us since part of the podcast, we're trying to focus on positivity. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've actually only been at Seattle Children's for like three months, even though like I was just talking to the center director and I was like, oh, I've been here for a year. And he's like, no, you have not. But <laughs> it's been like a very condensed three months. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I submitted like the first thing I did is I submitted this um, like innovator grant to the NIH. So kind of just my my this year, it's kind of hard to hire people and it's kind of hard to get started. So I'm really focusing on just getting some grants out and then getting some papers out that'll really lay like a good foundation for what I hope to do in the next couple of years. So yeah, I submitted a grant. I've got two papers that are like in prep that are kind of like pretty exciting stuff. I think they're like probably my best papers. And uh, I have like one one of them, the one that we're collaborating on. And yeah, I was able to do that. I have, you know, one undergrad right now and I'm like looking for a postdoc, interviewing some postdocs right now. So just kind of taking it slow and really focusing on getting like a good groundwork. I'll probably submit another grant in February, so. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about mentorship and how how mentorship has changed for you now that you are a PI and like it is kind of part of your role now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very different, like, you know, for each individual and for like the, the area that you're in. So like if you're at a primarily undergraduate institution, it's very different, like your mentoring responsibilities. If you're in like a, you know, big university or if you're in like, like a research institute. And so, you know, when I was at the ISB, I was primarily, you know, I had like undergrads and I was mentoring a grad student like informally. But now um, I think, you know, trying to keep like a smaller lab together and doing like a little bit more mentoring. Um, yeah, so we'll kind of see how it goes. Um, you know, still trying to like figure out how things are working here at Seattle Children's as far as like, you know, how many people take grad students. It's like not as much as other, like the University of Washington. Because sure. um, I'm not in a degree granting program. So it's like, a little bit contemplated to take graduate students. Um, I see. So you will you take graduate students on, or will it mostly be postdoc undergrad? So hypothetically, like eventually, there could be a way for me to take graduate students on. But right now, I'm not really focusing on that. I'm primarily focusing mm-hmm. on like postdocs and undergrads because I think we have like a lot of like research that could be done in like the next couple of years, and I think it would be like better, like a better fit for like a postdoc. Sure. Could you share a little bit about your department there at Seattle Children's and like the types of research that everyone does and kind of how you guys function as a as a whole? Yeah, I can briefly talk about it. You know, I'm still like pretty new, still figuring things out. Um, So I'm in the Center for Developmental Biology and Regenerative Medicine. And it's like, I think the smallest center of like the seven that are at Seattle Children's and it's really like a developmental biology research group, which really attracted me because I thought it would be a great research group to work with to get more insight into like the molecular mechanisms underlying some of these like pregnancy complications and the relationship between the prenatal environment and um, pregnancy outcomes. 
And so there's like a lot of people that do like vascular biology research and like imaging. There's um, a lot of people that use like animal models to study like development of different organs. And um, also a lot of people that study like craniofacial malformations or um, like um, adverse, like really severe developmental disorders um, or I did a clinical rotation at Seattle Children's when I was in grad school, and there were a lot of MDs working on, like, the craniofacial and the genetic disorders that cause, like, some of them were just so terrible, like, brain malformations, and, like, the kids would get, like, they'd have, like, a seizure every minute. Yeah. There's diseases, and some of them, like, they still don't know, like, what gene causes it, um... And they'll like yeah. collect, the doctors will like collect these cases that kind of look like each other and then, you know, do sequencing or whatever and try to identify like the gene that's causing yeah. it. Yeah, that's like a lot of the stuff that people in this department do, like the craniofacial malformations group, because those disorders are so rare compared to like what I'm used to studying, which, you know, you can capture in a birth cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of, it's like very different perspective because they're like working with a couple of small cases of you know, sometimes very severe disorders that they don't really know, like, what the cause is to, like, you know, more study disorders, um, like cleft palate, which there's a little bit more data on. What would you say, like, within pregnancy, is there a particular, you know, disease or toxicology that you focus on? Or are you open to collaborating across all of these different types of um you know, potentially developmental issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for my like immediate research, like I primarily focus for my postdoc on preterm birth and I'm going to, you know, keep going in that direction a little bit, looking at changes in relation to gestational length. But the area that I've kind of like focused more on recently is environmental exposures, studying phthalates and their role on placental function, um, working with Sheila Seth and Yorana, who's my um, co-mentor on my K99. And we've actually done some really interesting things with phthalates. And I think this is one of the more exciting like projects I've worked on is looking at how these environmental exposures influence the placenta and like some really important pathways. Can you tell us what phthalates are? Am I saying that right? Yeah. So phthalates are like um, like soft. They're in a lot of soft plastics. Um, so they are in you know, like, um, like medical, like the capsules for like pharmaceuticals, they're in like a lot of like shampoo, uh, conditioner, like a lot of personal care products. Okay. And also in a lot of children's toys. So they're really interesting in pregnancy because, you know, women use personal care products like shampoo, conditioner, like makeup, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then also like babies often put soft plastics in their mouth. Right. So they're just kind of in a lot of different things and they're, in they're everywhere. Stuff. Yeah. So has, has your work on that at all changed like your own personal hygiene habits? Like, do you buy, I mean, cause we're, Jeff and I use like Dr. Bronner's and like, we're pretty like simple here. Um, but I'm curious. Yeah. You know, I had known that phthalates were like associated with things for like a long time, but once I started like writing the paper and like reading the reviews papers in the sense of like writing the paper, I had this day where I was just like, and I just like threw it like everything, which I sometimes I do. Um, and I started using like, um, like the solid bars of shampoo and conditioner. Cause I feel like for me, like that was the thing that I think 
I was exposed to a lot of phthalates and I try to be like more mindful of using plastics, mm -hmm. but it's so hard because they're like everywhere. And I mean, that's part of the thing is like, we need to find like healthy ways to like interact and like use these products because we sure. can't without them. And they're a lot of medical supplies, but yeah, yeah I try to like cut them where I can. Totally. I think that's such an important thing to kind of recognize. Like there's a lot of, these products that so many of us use and kind of expect ourselves to use. And I think it really comes from this, like, you know, not to get like, I don't know, outside of the science, but like the capitalist, like consumer mentality yeah. of like needing to sell us like more and more products. And like the reality is, you know, there's so many ingredients in these products that we still don't have a great understanding of. And I think down the road as, you know, scientists like you who are, you know, striving to understand the molecular impact of some of these ingredients, we can really like know what we should have weeded out, you know, like I think of like yeah. the ethidium bromide example of how they used to stain meat red with ethidium bromide. And uh, then they found out that it causes cancer. And so now yeah. we know. Now we know, but there's presumably like less extreme versions of that, that we are, you know, um, exposed mm -hmm. to on a daily basis potentially. So I, I find that yeah. really interesting. So I think it's interesting, like, yeah, like learning, like what is like associated with things and just like generally like trying to be more mindful, but it's hard to cut these things out entirely. And, you know, the interesting thing about phthalates is like, there are many, many different chemical compounds and in the analysis that I'm doing, we're looking at like all the different types. And it's kind of interesting because my best friend from high school is, um, she's a chemical engineer and she works with like a lot of plastic. Like she doesn't work with like soft plastic. She works with like hard plastics, but it's interesting talking to her about, you know, how they put them together and, you know, how they're so important. But, and there's like many different versions. There's many different ways you can make them and they're all like a little bit different. So, you know, kind of asking yeah. like, which one matter? And, you know, using the molecular data, you can kind of see it. So interesting. Exciting for that paper to come out. Yeah, I think plastics are so interesting because, you know, they've also really revolutionized like the type of science I do, for instance, with consumable mm -hmm. pipette tips and, um, mm -hmm. you know, plastic flasks and things like that. It's allowed us to grow cells in the lab sterilely and do a lot of important science but we also produce like so much plastic waste as a result mm -hmm. and I usually feel so guilty like the bags of plastic that I you know go through um, yeah I get in the lab <laughs> like no amount of like beeswax paper things in the home is going to make up for like the amount of plastic damage I do in the lab. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking that too, when I was doing lab work, cause I was, you know, isolating like DNA and RNA from like hundreds of samples. And I would just like, you know, have like a box of pipette chips and just go through them in like two hours. And it was, it's kind of the, I don't know, catch 22 of biomedical <laughs> research, but, um, hopefully I, I know a lot of companies actually are trying to move towards greener, Products, mm -hmm. Rainin, for instance, they make pipette tips in recyclable containers now. Um, and, you know, I think people are trying to become more aware of um, the kind of environmental consequences of our field and, and what we do. But I think it's still 
still got mm -hmm. a ways to go. Um, so hopefully it gets gets a little bit more environmentally friendly, but yeah, absolutely. So I had a question, Jeff and I want to start having kids like next year. And oh, it's a yeah. And um and I've been on Zoloft for the last year and it's been amazing for me. Like mm -hmm. I avoided medication for a long time and it just like mm -hmm. has been kind of a game changer for me and I'm just in a good place. Um and so I met with a doctor at Seattle OBGYN. Mm -hmm. Really nice doctor. Yeah. And so I was asking her about Zoloft and if I should try to get off of it before I start getting pregnant because, you know, I really want to have a clean pregnancy. I want to make sure, yeah. you know, my potential baby is in a good environment developmentally. Um, mm -hmm. And what she told me was that Zoloft is actually like the one of the safest drugs you can be on and that they mm -hmm. often even prescribe women who are showing signs of, um, postpartum depression postpartum depression my brain just blanked um mm -hmm. that they often put women on zoloft because it's the it's like the most tolerated one which i have no understanding of like the research so i wanted to ask you if you know anything about it if you could like share anything yeah. you know about like why they think it's so safe like clearly there's some kind of body of research behind it that like multiple doctors i've talked to have referenced um, mm -hmm. I'm curious so, your thoughts. Yeah, antidepressants in pregnancy has been like a pretty like hot topic, like pretty contested area because like it's a the most common medication that women who are of childbearing age are on. And you know, there's good reasons like to be on it and there's good reasons not to be on it. And I think it's really hard because the way that people set up these like studies initially to test like safety, like excluded women from like clinical trials. I don't know too much about individual like chemical, like the individual pharmaceutics like Zoloft and like all of those things in depression. Actually, Yan Mi, who's a graduate student in Nathan Price's lab, is doing a project on antidepressants in pregnancy, kind of going through electronic medical records data. So I think that there's still like a big body of research that needs to be done. And honestly, from my perspective, it's been kind of like a mess. So I've avoided it as a researcher. But I can tell you, um, I you know, did a lot of work on glucocorticoid and serotonin signaling in the placenta and trying to understand like how glucocorticoid and serotonin signaling like from the mother might impact the baby at a physiological level. And I think the placenta makes serotonin, it's like transport serotonin and maternal stress and glucocorticoid signaling is very important for fetal development. So I think it's like very important to have those better understanding. That's like a research area that we need more detail on. But at the same time, it's, you know, really hard to study. But I think a lot, you know, one of the key things is like, if you're healthier, if you're not like stressed out or depressed, like you're going to do a better job, like taking care of yourself. Yeah. And then you're have a healthier pregnancy. And that was, that was the advice that this particular doctor gave me was that, you know, they, they care a lot about the baby, but they also care a lot about the mothers and, you know, wanting the mothers to be, um, in a good place and that's going to impact mm -hmm. you know the fetus so her advice was actually to not go off of it and to just mm -hmm. like if it's a good thing and it's working for me like to just stay on it um and that was actually the same advice i got from my psychiatrist 
still like I haven't really seen the data I don't feel like I have a great body mm -hmm. of work to like make my own decision as a scientist but so you know I thought it was interesting so small like in like the like in the like women's health space they'll be like I just can't believe like as a scientist like I just hit so many dead ends where I'm like oh I guess no one's looked at this or I guess there's been like a study of 200 women and we're making like decisions off of this <laughs> so yeah it's that was one thing I think you kind of opened my eyes to was like how understudied pregnancy is even though it's such an important part of like human life and I think it's a shame that there aren't more people studying it, you know, like, can, is there, is the funding getting better at least? Like, are we putting as a government, like, are we putting more money into pregnancy research now? Or yeah, do you feel like it's still like, there's, like, it's not moving in the right direction? I feel like generally, like, it is moving forward in the right direction. Like, there is money that the NICHD has been like, you know, pretty good with funding. It's, you know, a smaller agency compared to some of, of the other agencies. Can you tell um, us what the, the acronym stands for? Oh, yeah, sorry. It's the National Institute of Child Health and Development. And so that's like the primary funding agency for pregnancy research. I see. And, you know, I think there's been some, like, they've focused a lot on, like, some aspects of preterm birth and pregnancy, but they haven't focused on, like, a broader perspective. And I think that Things, there's like the human placenta project that came out, which is what like I was funded on for a while um, that studies, you know, the role of the placenta. So I think that, you know, that has really helped things. And I think that there are like a lot of researchers studying pregnancy, but sometimes I think they just don't get recognized. And that's part of what this podcast is for. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm exactly shamelessly right. plugging this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, a, yeah, it's just like out of, a lot of the different kind of biological fields out there that you and I are familiar with. I think mm -hmm. it like, hopefully this episode will like inspire the future pregnancy researchers to like go and study it because it's so important and there's so much we don't know. Um, yeah. So one question I love asking fellow scientists, um, because for me, for whatever reason, my, um, I think some of the most exciting moments in science is when you like get a result that no one's ever seen before and you kind of are the first to see it. And, you know, this thing that you built or made is working, this drug is working, your, your, your uh, <laughs> Python script is working. Um, yeah. Can you share maybe a story of something like that in your career and, and what that felt like and what you found out that you were excited about. Yeah, I actually had one of them recently. I can't share it on the podcast, but I would actually love to share it with you um, offline. Okay. Um, I kind of had was when I was in grad school, I was studying, you know, genes involved in serotonin and glucocorticoid signaling during pregnancy. So these are like stress response genes. I had like kind of like a list of genes that I was interested in studying. And we looked at this gene called FKBP5, which is a gene that's primarily associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. But what I actually did was I looked at that gene in the placenta and there was genetic variation and then also DNA methylation of that gene, which is like an epigenetic variation was associated with the changes in newborn neurobehavior. 
So it's kind of showing the relationship between this like stress response gene, kind of giving an indication that it's important in the placenta and relating it to newborn neurobehavior. And it's previously been only studied in adults. And then, you know, looking back, I realized that there's a study that came out a couple of years after I published this study showing that maternal stress is associated with changes in the placenta in the same gene. So kind of taking a gene that's only been studied in adults in relation to post-traumatic stress and that kind of thing and looking at its role specifically in pregnancy was kind of interesting. Wow. And it's kind of, I mean, that paper originally didn't get published in that high tier of a journal, but I think it's like one of the more interesting analyses that I've done. So I really like that paper. Very cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting in science how some of the results that you think or, you know, find the most impactful might not necessarily get get noticed or picked up by by the top journal that you expect. We definitely had that recently with a, my last paper from grad school. I know, picking like the journal to like apply to has been like a real challenge for me. And that's actually kind of been something that's interesting. Like talking to men in the field, I'll be like going through like the paper that's already been published and they're like, oh, you should have submitted this in like a higher tier journal. And it's kind of like, you kind of have to have like the self-confidence to like submit it into these higher tier journals. And then also, you know, have the time to be like, oh, like it's gonna get rejected like a bunch of different times. Oh yeah. So I've definitely experienced that. Overall, the best thing to do is like find a home for it where like the most researchers that'll be interested in reading it will like find it. And like for me, sometimes I publish in pregnancy journals and they're not necessarily the highest impact journals, but I know that those are the journals that people who are really interested in this field will be looking at, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, ultimately the way that we, you know, conduct our literature research is, you know, relying on PubMed and search terms and, you know, not necessarily like what's in a particular journal. And so, um, yeah. you know, there's plenty of papers that weren't in nature or science that, you know, I reference all the time, you know, I come back to all the time and I'm kind of, you know, don't even, I'm not even aware of like what journal it was necessarily published in as long as I have access to it. So yeah, exactly. And as long as it like the science makes sense. So yeah. So as an assistant professor with UW, do you get all of the kind of university access to journals and things like that? Yeah, that's actually been great is having access to all these papers through UW. That's awesome. Because previously I, I was like emailing my boyfriend like every day. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that's been really great. I definitely like miss having my UW access. Like mm -hmm. once I wasn't there anymore, it was like, oh no. Well, if you um, ever want papers, like feel free to email me. I mean, I'm okay. Yeah, no, we have, uh, we have, we have plenty of like Duke connections now with where I'm at, oh, but like, but um, when I was at my former company, we had this like ridiculous service where you had to buy each paper, which there's something oh, very, there's something very different about like, you go to want to read a paper that's like highly relevant to what you're doing. Like you kind of need this paper. And then it's like, buy for $34.95. And you're just like, well, Okay. <laughs> I know. I've heard of another research institute recently, like implementing that kind of thing. And it would be because I like look at a lot of papers because I'm a big like lit review person. Mm -hmm. And so I look at like all of these papers. And so I'll be like, you know, if I'm looking at like, I want to look at gestational length, I'll find like every single paper that's done gestational length. And I'll look at like what confounding variables they use. And I'm not 
spending like not that much time on each paper, but I need to look at a lot of them. So that would be like very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind it's, of like working from seems... home, not on your institutional network is, you know, good for. Yeah, for sure. And the news like UC Berkeley went up against, I think it was Elsevier. Yeah. And there's, there've been some like institutions that have like, um, basically protested against like traditional scientific publishing houses mm -hmm. and these, you know, giant, um, I don't know what you would call them. <laughs> My brain is like slowing down right now. Yeah, um, it's just like such a big organization that yeah. so much of these like publications. Do you think it like, do you think it needs to change? Like, are you a, you know, science publication like advocate for like free the science <laughs> i forget what their like twitter tag is but i just like fundamentally don't understand like the like the government is like funding these like paper like these projects these papers mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. for like a scientist or like the general public to like have to pay so much money to get access to these papers it's yeah. really like not it just doesn't really make any sense to me and i also you know wonder if people were able to have read scientific papers, like go directly to their primary literature, like not only like be taught how to read scientific papers in school, but also like have access to them very easily. Like how much would that change? Like how we interpret science and how much would that change? Like the trust of the public in science? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Along that line of thought, I'm curious if you have very many friends or family that ask you for your advice like on pregnancy and pregnancy research and how do you typically respond to that like have you ever like digested literature for somebody and kind of given them a synopsis or you know help them yeah. to understand i try to do that like as much as possible like, i'm really happy to talk to people about it with the you know indication that like i'm not a clinician but you know sometimes people ask me there's a couple of questions people like commonly ask me but recently, one example is like, um, I had a friend ask me about like COVID and pregnancy because she had a pregnant friend that wanted to fly. And they were like, how safe is COVID during pregnancy? And this was like in May. And the important thing to like, I think kind of think about with pregnancy is like, it's like temporal, like when you get infected, it like what trimester didn't like might matter. We don't really know. And it was like May. So like you couldn't, there weren't that much like, data on people in pregnancy. And like all the data, like originally, like I think in March and April, they were like, oh, it's it's safe during pregnancy, but it really like it just wasn't crossing the placenta, I think. But then there's like been a lot of papers around that time that started to come out showing that it was associated with increased risk of preterm birth. And so then I was kind of like, well, you would basically be like a science experiment if you like happen to get COVID at that time. So like, I don't know if you want to do that. Yeah. So I kind of like helped, like, especially with like stuff that's like up and coming where there's like a lot of publications coming out pretty fast. Um, a question that I get asked a lot is, you know, should you eat your placenta? I think that's like the most common question I get asked. And like every placental biology person I've talked to has gotten asked this question. <laughs> and what do you say? I think it's a very bad idea. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, I have no opinion on the subject, so I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, it's like an interesting organ, but like the basis behind like eating it, like doesn't really make any sense you know there's like some justifications that people use but like animals nutritional value 
Oh yeah, animals yeah. do it. Like, but animals do it to like leave no trace, right? Like, so that they don't get like attacked by a predator. Yeah, exactly. And then I think you know, I'm like really interested in environmental exposures in the placenta, and the placenta is like meant to be like a barrier. So, right, it's like the organ filter for your baby, right? Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I went to a placenta conference in Oregon, and we had like this uh, icebreaker event, and it was like all these like questions about placentas, which was kind of funny. And one of them was like, you know, have you seen a placenta? Have you like made a placenta for people that are pregnant? And then one of them was like, have you like eaten a placenta? And like not single, one single person from that conference would do that. And like, these are placental biologists. So like, that should be an indication. Wow. A, <laughs> I love that. That's some so Oh my gosh. It's so bizarre. You haven't you haven't eaten placenta then? No, I think you should donate your placenta to research. That's a good point. Everybody That's who's listening, make sure to donate your placenta to research. <laughs> Don't eat it. <laughs> Give it away. <laughs> um well, I think that's a pretty funny note to to end our interview on. And Ali, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time during crazy election week, um, and while practice. you're yeah, while you're getting your lab set up to chat mm -hmm. with us tonight and teach us so much about pregnancy and the placenta. Um, and it was just a pleasure hearing about your journey in science and uh, where you're at today. So. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to share, you know, what I've been doing with everybody. And, you know, um, it was great to talk to you. <laughs>